Hello, welcome to Circuit and Gear, a podcast where we discuss scenic automation and other interesting tech. I'm Gareth Connor. And I'm Mike Wade. Mike, how's it going? <laughs> good, Gareth. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I think we both got our kids to bed and uh, carved out a little time to do a podcast, right? Hey, it seems it seems at the moment that we're both in the clear. Yes, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> watch out for stray animals wandering through and uh, all sorts of distractions yeah so um we're gonna kick off talking about encoders um i think it's a topic we've touched on several times in the past but um it keeps coming up in our day-to-day life and uh and there's there's questions left out there so we thought we'd take another crack at them right yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like two or three weeks ago. It seemed like every time I picked up the phone, it was somebody asking me about an encoder or an encoder question or an encoder problem. Right. Yeah. You're, <sighs> you're on the front lines these days, right? Like you, <laughs> you're up close and personal with what it is uh, people are having trouble with. Well, it's certainly on the phone calls I'm answering. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There you go. Um, so one of the first things that comes up, I think when, and we kind of, we talked about this before the show and we're trying to decide how do we tackle this. And uh, I think a good way to step through it is just to talk through the specifications of an encoder if you're going to be buying one for the first time. So if you're out there and you've got a machine and you're trying to find an encoder for it, you know, what are the things that you're looking for? Um, and the first thing that you bump into is people talking about, PPR and CPR, which are pulses per revolution or counts per revolution, uh, which are both just a, a way of describing the resolution. And Mike, why does the resolution matter on an encoder? And what does it mean? Well, the higher the resolution, <clears throat> ultimately, the higher the resolution, the more accurate your positioning will be because you have a higher number of counts per revolution of the encoder. Um, so, you know, what that ultimately means is when you, uh, when you put your position scaling in, if you have a lower resolution encoder, and that is something under, um, under about a thousand counts per unit, you know, so like a a thousand counts per degree or per inch, um, you'll start running into problems of, Either, you know, potentially motors and machines aren't going to actually finish their run or you're going to have to set your uh, your position tolerance a little higher in order to to actually complete the cues. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's exactly right. I, that it's the system just has to work uh, less hard uh, if the resolution is higher. And one of the you're absolutely right. Like it's it's. It affects obviously end of travel um, target accuracy, but the thing that kind of slips slips past people sometimes is that it it also makes tuning a ton easier uh, when you're doing your PID loop tuning. And one of it, it's if you step back and think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, if we imagine that the the motor uh, you know is connected directly to this encoder. And we're trying to get it to twitch forward, you know, three clicks on the encoder. Well, if three clicks on the encoder is only like a, uh, you know, a tenth of a degree on the motor movement, 
it just requires a lot less energy to move that. But if three clicks on the encoder is like a 180 degree move on the on the motor rotor, um, that's going to require a lot more energy. And then it's going to take more control um, to be able to stop it um, after that half rotation. You're just swinging through a much wider range of power usage um, for every encoder click that you're making. And so it just means that you've got to spend more time tuning the system with a lower resolution encoder. Um, and that may sound lazy, but encoder <laughs> resolutions are pretty cheap. So um, getting just a high, I think a lot of people would give their left arm if they're you know stuck on a tuning problem just to get out of a tuning problem any way they could. So it's nice to know that one of the ways out of a tuning problem is to put a much higher resolution encoder on it, and it makes the system just work a lot better. Yeah. And now, so, you know, our, uh, our stock encoders are somewhere in like the 2,500, 2,500 counts or revolution or something along those lines. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's typically what we do is, um, we'll either get a 2,500 count per revolution encoder, um, or, uh, if we're buying them, if we're buying them from SEW, um, pre-built onto the machines, they're usually 1024 uh counts per revolution so and those like the sew encoders are mounted on the back end of the motor so that's a thousand twenty four counts uh per revolution before the gearbox you know so you're getting a ton of encoder counts that's giving you some pretty serious uh positioning it is it is so like once you once you're scaled in uh on the old push sticks that was somewhere around 4,000 counts per uh, inch of travel. And then <laughs> on the on the newer ones, it's a little bit less. It's about 30-something, like 3,500. Um, so it's like we lose about 500 counts per revolution, but we're still above 3,000 counts per inch um, on there. So, <laughs> That's still pretty tight. It's pretty tight, yeah. If you imagine <laughs> chopping up an inch into 3,000 parts, you know, we're, we're usually good... <laughs> <laughs> it's usually accurate enough for getting yeah. on a piece of scenery on stage. Right. Um, yeah. And then that kind of rolls into the next uh, specification that you got to look at when you're buying an encoder, which is the signal output. Um, and the first piece of that is that you, you got to get at a quadrature encoder, um, which means that you've got two channels, an A channel and a B channel. Uh, they're 90 degrees out of phase with one another. Um, and this is probably something easier to see than to talk about, <laughs> but the, the, the point of having those two channels 90 degrees out of phase is that they, um, you can determine what direction the encoder is moving just by looking at two changes in state on the encoder wheel. So every time it changes a little bit um, and you electrically switch signals, from one signal change to the next signal change, there's a pattern and the pattern is uh, laid out uh, differently for forward and reverse. Um, so the quadrature signal with the A and B channel help you figure out if you're going forward or reverse. And then of course you can count the number of changes to get your speed. Um, but electric, so that, so you gotta have that. You gotta have at least the A and B. But then there's another layer, isn't there, Mike, that you gotta add on? There is, <laughs> there is, it would be, uh, would be the, <clears throat> the, the type 
um, the differential line driver. Right. The next, the next answer in there, usually just, usually just a D in the part number. <laughs> right. Um, and that means balancing, that means a balanced signal, which they're so, because you're saying the A and the B channel, but each of those channels has an A and a not A and a B and a not B. So we're, so we're looking at two, looking at two pieces each right. time. Right, right. And that, we do that for noise reduction because it's, it's like having a balanced mic line or like uh, transmitting Ethernet signals or RS-45. These things often go in complementary pairs of signals. Um, and it's just for, for getting rid of interference that might be, um, that you might come in contact with, which of course on stage running along cables, <laughs> there's plenty of opportunities for some interference. Right. Cause like what we were just talking about this before, uh, the, if an unbalanced, in an unbalanced signal run, the, 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 uh, suggested max length of the cable run is something like 10 or 15 feet. Right. Yeah, that's um, right. It can be anywhere from like six to fifteen feet, depending <laughs> on the yeah the manufacturer's spec. But it's very short. And um, right, and so you know, so if we get in there with the with the differential, then we can get up into several hundred feet of run without without, without too problems. much worry of yeah without too much worry of a loss. Right, right, and you of course always want to be careful about not running long distances of signal wires, you know, in parallel with power wires. But as long as you're kind of, you know, as long as you take your normal precautions for running your cable, you can go hundreds of feet with the encoder line if you have a differential line driver. Um, and that's usually not that big of an upcharge, if any upcharge, uh, when you're specifying an encoder. But um, in our system, we don't even, you can't even accept a single-ended encoder. We we demand a, <laughs> a differential line because um, it just, in the end, it saves everybody hassle if you if you do that. Yeah. Well, and it'll get you to stop in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yep. Um, and then actually looking at our list here, I'm actually going to jump one item down to the counts versus direction. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> you know, speaking, since we're talking about the A channel and the B channel, and we talked about how that, you know, there's a pattern to that rotation with those two signals. Um, why why the heck does that matter? Like we get this, I mean, you've experienced this firsthand several times now, right? That <laughs> I mean, I have I have personally experienced the <laughs> sure. going count in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, and and answer the phone. Right. And and that's kind of going back to that tuning thing like yeah, it's easier to tune, but to to piece that apart a little bit in the you know, when you're trying to run this thing on an automated system, if the computer thinks that the encoder is not where it should be, the only thing it can do is if it's trying to make up distance is give more power to the system. Right. Right. And so this is why if your encoder is backwards and it's counting in the wrong direction, when you write a cue in spike mark, the wagon or your piece could travel off at full speed in the wrong direction. Yeah, like instantly. Instantly. It's, it's basically like it gives a little bit of power to the system and it's like, oh, we're we're losing position. All right, give it more power. <laughs> now we're losing more position. Now give it more power more and more power. power and more power. <laughs> and uh if you if you have if you don't have a board on position error turned on, 
which you should. But which if you, you should. <laughs> but if you don't, if you've turned that off, uh, yeah, it'll just full speed rocket in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is an important piece of why the abort on position error is so important um, in there, you know, in the queuing. For those of you who don't know, on the <clears throat> on the right hand side in spike mark, you can uh, down in uh in the position error in the position area yeah asking yeah 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 <laughs> no you're right you're right it's at the position uh, area yeah um there's a checkbox that says abort on position error and um it's really easy to ignore that and to uncheck it so that you can get your machine to run but that also then takes another layer of safety from from the from potentially the piece running away on you right right because while it, it'll do that, obviously, if you've got the encoder backwards, <laughs> similarly, if you if the encoder just becomes disconnected completely or, you know, you have a, a failure in the encoder, it'll do the same thing. Yes. All hell could break loose. <laughs> yeah. It is terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying when that happens. So we were yeah. at the uh, we were on stage at a at a show once and they had a hydraulic turntable and the uh, <laughs> the there was a pinion. Uh, in the center of the turntable <laughs> and it fell off like mid queue <laughs> and the, the turntable just shot off like a rocket and um and the actors and it, it, it was i mean luckily it wasn't couldn't go crazy crazy fast but it was distressingly fast especially if you're an actor on the turntable expecting <laughs> the thing to stop you know like it had every other night and uh yeah and the operator slammed the e-stop and and I was there just to like watch over the operator and do a little troubleshooting on something else. I don't even remember what the something else was. Cause this guy, <laughs> this kind of t- takes over the memory at this point. And I look real quickly at the screen. I'm like, why the hell do you have a board on position error turned off? He's like, Oh yeah, yeah. We just couldn't get it to run uh, smoothly. <laughs> so we unchecked it. You're like, yeah. All right. Well, here we are then. <laughs> here we are. Press that red button. Yeah. Everybody hold on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, <laughs> that little detour there. But the, uh, yeah, uh, use it. Use it. It's not just a good idea. Uh, well, and so it's also important to say, you know, if the if the encoder is counting backwards, you can jog the motor from the face of the stagehand totally successfully. Right. It's only when you start trying to run a queue that right. uh, in Spike Mark where, where things go go terribly wrong and and it's interesting to point out since we're getting distracted anyway that it's interesting <laughs> to point out that um and that's different on the stagehand pros on the stagehand pros um it won't shoot off like a rocket in manual mode but it will fault um, mm. if the encoder is backwards um it will fault at the drive level uh, which could be frustrating but also could be uh could save your bacon right because you'll well, know that's... instantly and that's because the stagehand pros give you the position, the position feedback right on the screen. They do give you the position feedback right on the screen. And then the, the other piece of that is that they were feeding the uh, encoder also into the drive and the drive is monitoring the encoder for velocity uh, feedback. And so it starts to see like a negative velocity where it should think it thinks it should be getting a positive velocity. And, oh, and so those, mis- those Mitsubishi drives get better every day. That's right. That's right. They got fancy. <laughs> so um, anyway, so well, so you know how we how do we fix this problem if your if your counts are going the wrong direction? So by the wrong direction, if you, I mean on a stagehand classic, 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, jogging the machine manually from the face of the drive, from the face of the stagehand. Um, the uh, if you're going forward and your counts are going in reverse, what do you do? Um, there's a couple. There's a couple pretty pretty simple things to do. Uh, the first one, you can swap any two hot legs feeding the motor power. Right. Um, and that will turn the direction of the motor around. And so then forward will be the other way. Right. Um, let me place that this could be trouble or this could actually potentially help you depending on how it's going. Um, if you care what direction forward is. Right. So, you know, as we were talking about before this, you know, as a, as a programmer, it's nice to have everything moving forward on stage if it's a wagon. Right. Um, or an overhead piece flying in, you know, in is reverse. Right. Forward is, forward is out. Um, and, you know, so, so you can run into some which way the, which way the counts are going um, when you're looking at it in spike mark in that, in that sense. Yeah. Um, and that's a really good point just to hang on for a second because it, it, it you see that a lot, especially when people are first getting acclimated to automation, that they, they're they very anxious to flip the motor direction just to get the piece to move in the direction they want it to. They want forward to be this way, which is which is all well and good. I mean, it's a good thing to do. But you you got to then make sure that the, <clears throat> the encoder is agreeing with your decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so so let's say you want to do that. Yeah. And then and then the encoder is not agreeing with your with your decision right um you know how do you do that you put in a belt and you like tie it in a figure eight right isn't that (laughs) how you reverse direction or something like that Uh, i mean that's how i do it all the time (laughs) exactly that's why i always keep an extra belt yeah (laughs) just like a 36 right yeah exactly (laughs) no Um, but in all seriousness uh yeah so you got to change that you got to alter that electrical pattern of the a and b channels and the way that they're phasing uh to each other so you got to swap the the A and the B, but because they're in a a paired set, you have to swap the A and the not A with the B and the not B. Right. So it's four. It's four yeah. connections that you're changing. Yeah. Um, and you can do that in your in your encoder in your in your encoder cable, mm-hmm. um, uh, or you know one of the great pieces that is you know one of the great pieces in my toolkit is uh is an is an encoder an encoder turnaround right <laughs> which just has r2 encoder cable connectors on it and inside it is swapped around the a and the b channels are swapped already right 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 and it, it's nice to make those like a like a little one foot chunk Shorty. of cable yeah mm-hmm. so you know exactly what that thing is doing yeah right and totally. for me, for me as a as an operator and a programmer, when I we're putting it in, if we're doing, if we're swapping the <clears throat> encoder chain, you know, the encoder directions, I always like to do that at the drive. Yeah. So that when I walk up to the drive, I know that we've done it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that it's there. Um, but you know, that's again, you know, I think goes back to the which way is forward and why does it matter? Right. Yeah. No. Totally. Um, then the other thing we're going to talk about is like, uh, you know, retrofitting this stuff onto old machines and, and how, how you attach these encoders. Cause we, we were talking about, uh, trying to get more resolution to the system. 
the best place to put these encoders is right on the motor if you can. And, you know, if you're buying a gear motor from SCW, then it's taken care of already. Um, or you can put a C-face encoder in to get it on the motor yeah. side. Um, but if you if you can't, like if it's just a, a total pain to mechanically work out that linkage, um, you know, a lot of people throw a sprocket on their encoder and then chain it to their uh, output shaft of the machine. And, you know, that, I don't know. It's, it's got, <laughs> I, I can appreciate the expediency of it, right? Like cause sometimes you're just stuck and you got to do what you got to do. You got to get this encoder on there. But, um, but what are some of the bad side effects of that, Mike? Um, you know, <laughs> there's lots. Uh, yeah, um, I took the short list. I took the good one. Yeah. yeah thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, you touched on it already, you know, lower resolution can get in there and, and cause some trouble. But also anytime you introduce chain into anything, even with the best tensioning, even with the best tensioner you can put in place and the best idler, you're still going to have backlash. There's yeah. still a pretty serious, there is not even, there's not just a potential that I think there is a reality of backlash yeah. happening in, in the spin, in your encoder. And so that's going to send, you know, dirty and bogus signals to spike mark to then cause problems down the line about how accurate your positioning is and, and that how- smoothness of motion especially when you're changing directions you know it's like when you as you're because what what the control system really wants to see is a very tight uh response between input into the system and output from the system and uh, anything that you put in there that's flexible you know, and has backlash in it, um, is going to create, a uh, you know, hysteresis in the system. Now, just, just out of curiosity, could you do something like a timing belt in there to, to stave off some of that backlash problem? Yeah. 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 I mean, it definitely gets better with a timing belt. Yep. Absolutely. And you can use some of those like, you know, backlash, uh, whatever they call them, but like, you know, backlash defeating sprockets where they, it's like two sprockets that are got a spring between them to they kind of suck up the backlash um yeah i mean there's definitely options um yeah for sure and so if you are going to go this route that's definitely a good thing to consider that if you um it might be better to if you can work it with a timing belt instead (laughs) yeah because it has certainly less backlash so yeah oh that's good um we got an interesting note uh, from Lauren Schreiber and the, some of the guys out in California about uh, some encoder digging around that they did uh, a while back. This has been on our backlog list for a bit. <laughs> um, but uh, Bill Meyer out at Cal State Fullerton was having trouble with um, the system and basically the uh, wagon kind of creeping on stage. And what I mean by that is that they'd run a cue out and back and it would land on its spike and they'd run it out and back again. It would creep like a half inch further on stage, run it out back again, creep like another inch on stage. And it kept kind of working its way like an inchworm more and more (laughs) on stage, but still always hitting its numbers. Its numbers were dead. It's just the physical position was uh, moving. And, I was going to say nine times out of 10, what we would say. And uh, this is probably exactly what we said to him at the time. So, (laughs) which is that like, well, it sounds like there's some mechanical problem, like that you're slipping somewhere mechanically, um, 
Well, Lauren Schreiber went out and hooked up an oscilloscope to uh, Bill Myers encoders that he had, and he found some pretty interesting stuff, which was that the um, they were using some automation direct encoders, which is you know, I mean, it, everybody does this. It's like you you've got so much money and you got to get the thing working, and automation direct is a really tempting option because they've got equipment for cheap, you know. Yeah. But uh, they were seeing, Lauren was seeing a lot of noise on the uh, signal lines of the encoders, so much so that they, uh, it was triggering incorrect pulses uh, back on the control system. And, and he ran it at five volts and the noise was, was really bad. Um, and then he could push it all the way up to 12 volts um, and the signal to noise ratio was greatly reduced and the symptoms were practically erased. They weren't completely erased, but they were at, at least workable now. Yeah. But for comparison, then he plugged in an SEW encoder and <laughs> ran it. And that thing was, <laughs> was just clean as a whistle, you know? Um, yeah. But they, you know, they cost like at least list price. They're like 10 times the money, literally. Um, but shows a little bit of like, you get what you pay for. Like there is actually a difference in the electronics of these things. Um, and that they can have a real performance impact. Um, now that's an expensive lesson to learn. It's like, how do you do this without, you know, just buying a bunch of encoders and, and trying them out. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I I think some of it's like hearsay, you know, you kind of, uh, (laughs) cast a wide net, uh, and talk to people. And then some of it's just going with reputable uh, manufacturers that you know have a good reputation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we've it's this question has come up several times about why why should I buy the eight hundred dollar encoder? Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, and and until I saw this from Lauren, until I saw this, you know, this evidence that he did <laughs> on the bench, as it was. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't actually have a really good answer um, because admittedly, I've been, you know, somewhat um, I've been somewhat spoiled by, you know, having good encoders for the most part right. in front of me or on the machines that I'm using. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing to it's a good thing to remember that they're actually yeah, there's actually real, real differences there. Um, but if you are stuck and, you know, you got to use a more budget line encoder and you're having some trouble with it. You know, one of the the options there is to, as long as your controller can accept it, is to run it at a higher voltage, um, because then the the noise has to be appreciably larger to interfere with the signal. So, um, and that's where, you know, knowing a little bit about the electronics behind it can can help you out. Yeah, it's interesting. I had never uh, I never considered that upping the voltage into it would, you know, would would quiet it down enough or make the difference, you know, make the, make the, uh, the signal and the, the signal higher enough to, to the noise that was inherent there. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's like, you're not eliminating the noise. You're just making it not matter so much. It's kind of like, <laughs> kind of like painkillers, right? It's like, it doesn't really take away the pain. just makes you not care. But, um, yeah, the, sometimes uh, that's all right. <laughs> right. So that's all you're really going for. Um, but the, uh, which brings up an interesting point just from 
our equipment's perspective, which is that we used to run, actually, when we first brought out the stagehands, we ran all of our encoders at 24 volts for exactly this reason, to try and um, squelch noise problems, because the higher the voltage, you know, the less, the more interference you have to have before it creates a problem. Yeah. But then we we had some issues with that because a lot of people wanted to use um, encoders that were rated at up to 12 volts, particularly the automation direct encoders. And um, and so we dropped the voltage to 12 volts, um, which was a pretty good, actually it seemed like a pretty good middle ground. Um, but then recently we've gone all the way back down to five volts and that's because the uh, in the stagehand pros, um, I should say we've gone to five volts in the stagehand pros because in the in the pros we have to interface that encoder signal sometimes with the Mitsubishi um, encoder feedback module and that's only safe to run at five volts otherwise you let the smoke out so <laughs> um, so yeah so which is not my preference per se but uh, but again with a with a good encoder you don't have don't have too much trouble um, but it's just an interesting side note. Yeah. Um, I think that was it on encoders, right? Looking at the list. Do we have anything yeah. else? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I think we made it all the way through. On that. Well, nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the next, the next thing we had on there, uh, next thing we had on there was, uh, was some pretty awesome, uh, pretty awesome project that you put together with some variable speed chain hoists. Yeah. Um, Which is you did sweet. all, you did all the shop work and then I, then I went in and, and had bleeding fingers from installing <laughs> all of those terminations <laughs> on site. <clears throat> yeah, indeed. <laughs> oh, those no. shop guys, they're the worst. I don't know who got the better end of that one. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, but it was, it's a pretty cool project. I mean, uh, um, it's a great little, uh, great little, test run of our chain motor integration so we've got uh we started working with the the good folks over at uh chain master uh who are just distributed by act lighting um in the u.s and uh they're really nice um german-made chain motors um and one of the fun things about their product is that they um they work with oems like us to um kind of fit them out with whatever you want electrically inside um, and for us, you know, we wanted to have the dual brakes, um, and we wanted to have, uh, four limit switches. Um, but then beyond that, we wanted to put our own, our own encoder on it and do all of our own, uh, wire connections and so on, uh, which they were totally happy to do. Um, and they were really nice, uh, really nice chain motor. And then having, uh, I think just having chain motors available to run on stagehands with spike mark is an awesome feature. Because uh, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, th I think we're in agreement here that there are just times when a chain motor is the easiest way to get a job done. It's so familiar uh, to people out in the field. Um, and they're so robust and easy to handle, easy to set up. You know, it's a great piece of kit. Yeah, everybody knows how to how to hook. <laughs> how to hang a chain motor from a hook right right and then i mean not that i uh, that was <clears throat> not that not that the actual hanging above that isn't very important but you know right the termination of the chain motor is pretty straightforward 
It is. It is. And it's, and I think there's just, yeah. I mean, you take that out of the box versus like a wire rope, high speed hoist, uh, that, (laughs) and there's just, uh, it's a lot more intuitive for most technicians. Um, now these aren't anywhere near as fast as like the spotline hoist, but they're not, they're not totally slow either. I mean, they're, uh, what they're about 10 inches per second, I think is their, um, top speed. So it's, you know, it's a stately move, I would say. Um, <laughs> stately. I mean, in this particular case, we were hanging like a, an 1100 pound led wall or something. It was something intense like that. Yep. And, you know, so I mean, and in a church, yes. was, you know, we yep. don't need to, we don't need to go. Yeah, three feet a second. No, nobody wants to see that coming at three feet per second. (laughs) Absolutely, exactly. (laughs) Uh, No, I think yeah, slower is fine. Um, But you get a, you know, you still get that really nice positioning and control. You get a very, you know, beautiful acceleration and deceleration, and um, you know, totally controllable on all those parameters, just like you'd expect. I mean, you program it just like you would any other hoist. the other thing about this particular installation, this was in a church, as you said, and they wanted to bring in this uh, LED wall. And the uh, I've heard tell that I guess it was a little tight. Um, <laughs> was it just a tiny bit? <laughs> well, it was funny because we were looking at this job like last summer or initially, and it took a while to kind of go through the iterations and you know whatever, like get the get the details of the job worked out, and then actually. Um, I had to wait for them to build this facility and then install the equipment. Um, but when we were first looking at it, um, we were thinking like, oh, well, maybe we'll put like a flyman hoist in there um, or maybe even a spotline hoist um, or something along those lines. Uh, and they're really were... glad. I'm really glad. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Pete went out and did the site check and he comes back with these photos and I'm just like, Oh boy. Yeah. We, we're not putting any, hoi- you know, none of these hoists, none of the hoists that we make want to go up in that hole. It, no. it was a very, very, it was a very narrow slot and very tall. Like you had to get way up in there. And I'm like, I don't know how you're going to even, you know, install the hoist, let alone get up there and inspect it and you know, maintain it and all this, um, as opposed to like having a chain motor that you can like hang and, you know, clip on and unclip if you needed to. Um, and and certainly like from an installation perspective there's just not that much you know uh the wiring is the bigger challenge than the 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 mounting of the chain hoist Um, yeah well i mean you know the mounting of the chain hoist in this particular instance wasn't also had its own challenges no it it was easy peasy yeah yeah, lemon squeezy i didn't feel a thing (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad one of us didn't (laughs) (laughs) me too (laughs) The, the uh yeah, I mean, you know, this uh, you mentioned the gap was was pretty tight. So the the motor, the motor bodies, we had two of these in here. Um, they had to run parallel with the piece. We couldn't put them, we couldn't put them perpendicular. We couldn't put them upstage, <laughs> right. downstage because they didn't fit. Like they didn't <laughs> physically fit in the space. Um, yeah. and the the guys, the the uh, <clears throat> Ethan and and his team out at out at the church actually got the motors hanging up there and man, they did, they did some acrobatics inside a boom lift hanging yeah. in a, you know, jammed up into these roof beams through an access door, right. um, hanging the hoist and then shimmying it over. And then, it, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, they earned it. 
Yeah. They earned it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they earned it. And then after we were there and got them in and running, they ended up having to take them back down. Right. Right. So they earned it twice. Yeah. But could you imagine doing that with like a 600 pound flyman hoist, you know? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not without two chain motors. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But then, so stepping back a bit to the uh, the shop work um, where we were on benches with lots of wide open space around us. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we got these hoists in and... Um, we had a mount. We had to make a little bracket to mount in the encoder inside the chain hoist because basically there's um there's a motor and then a gear reducer um and then the limit switch shaft comes off parallel to the motor shaft on the output side of the speed reducer, which is something to pay attention to. Uh, so, um, especially given our previous talk about encoders and resolution. So, um. Well, before before we oh, got sure. there, those yeah. limit switches that were in that machine were really awesome. Yeah, those are nice, aren't they? The, those yeah. are those Stromag limit switches, which I think are pretty sweet. And uh, yeah, it'd be nice to use those on some of our own machines. Those are yeah. much easier to set and like they don't wiggle <sighs> around on you. No, no. I mean, my first experience with them was on a Garrett's international roll drop one of their giant crazy carbon fiber roll drops oh the carbon you, fiber ones those are that cool you refit you retrofit the motor oh that's right it was the actual piece that's right because it yeah. came out of the out of um geffen right? yeah it was geffen from the house. geffen yep. yeah 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 um and uh and they're so they're cool and they're easy to use yeah totally those are nice things um yeah, so the, so we took the but it had a long shaft coming out of that Stromag switch that engaged the um it was driven off of the output side of the uh, speed reducer. And um so like kind of on the other side of the bulkhead uh to the limit switch, we had to make a little bracket in there to mount our encoder and we got a um encoder products uh coder, you know, EPC, a hollow mount encoder, um like 12 millimeter hollow bore or something along those lines. Um, and we got just like a, I don't know, either a 1024 or 2500. I think it was a 2500, uh, PPR encoder. And, um, but didn't really, we were shy a little bit of resolution from what I would prefer. Um, <laughs> it, it worked fine in the end and it's, it's perfectly good on positioning and so on. Um, but it was a little janky to get it tuned up at first because we really only had a couple hundred, uh, or not even that much, right? It was like in the tens, there's like 50, 60, something like that, uh, pulses per, uh, inch of travel, I think. Right. Yeah. It, it turned out to be pretty low. It was pretty darn low. And, <laughs> um, and kudos to the Mitsubishi drive. Like it had no trouble driving that, um, and keeping it smooth and so on. And the, and we did get the tuning worked out, but, um, because we were on the output side of the gear, the speed reducer, we really should have, I should have, me should have, um, spec'd a much higher resolution encoder. And I think, um, you know, in the, in future models, when we do this again, and we're going to be doing plenty more chain motor gigs, uh, with these chain motors, we're going to put a much higher resolution encoder in there to make the tuning um, easier and get better, um, just get a, a better resolution out of it. Cause the other thing that 
uh, kind of goes hand in hand with that on the low resolution stuff is that uh, inside spike mark where it does limit you is on the acceleration curves. Um, that basically we don't have enough encoder data coming in fast enough uh, to get the full range of acceleration that you might want because um, there just isn't the, the steps are too big uh, in between the speeds. Right. Yeah. I, so. Yeah. I think I ran into that on a turntable. Mm hmm. You did. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking with you about it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yes. it wouldn't move, right? Like it. And uh, exactly. You're doing a little phone, phone exchange on that. And it's like, try changing the acceleration. Yeah. Boosting it way up. It's like, <laughs> yes. hey, now it's yeah. working. Like, yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it was pretty. It was. It was exciting. Yeah, it is exciting because it doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't really come to the forefront of your mind at first, <laughs> um, of one's mind. So, no. yeah. but anyway, the uh, that was kind of all I had to say about the the shop side of it was just the well, a that the I thought the chain motors were awesome. They're really nicely made. They work really great. It's awesome to see them working on uh, Spike Mark. Um, and that the uh, speaking of encoder resolutions and being on the output side of speed reducers, we should have gone higher there. <laughs> um, but you had some, you had some, you had some thoughts on the installation of these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you know, part of it, um, as you mentioned, it was a new building, um, and so you know, when when I got there, um, the it was a church and um, the chapel itself was was done they were doing trim work and finish bits in there um but but the equipment room the IT closet equipment room where our uh stagehand pros were going which were driving these things and our showstopper base and you know ethernet switch and uh all the bits and pieces uh, was was completely not done when I walked in the door. Yeah. Um, it was a room. It right. sure was a room. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh, and so it was. Uh, they were pushing to to get um, to get that done to get the actual facility so we could get the pieces set up. Yeah. Um, in there. Uh, and once we got. <laughs> once we got once we got the once we got the room in a good enough place um the local uh the local electrical contractor was using it as their office <laughs> and I, I walked into the room during lunchtime and the, these dudes had their thermoses open with coffee just sitting on top of the stage hands <laughs> yeah, they're a good height for that like, it's like coffee yeah it was a perfectly yeah. good height because you know they were sitting on like a bucket next to it <clears throat> right <laughs> like, like yeah, uh, it's a seven thousand dollar control panel yeah, yeah Jens, you might want to move. Yeah. Could you, could I get you to use a different bucket? For yeah, your, <laughs> for your exactly. Lunch um, uh, but um, so we did this as a permanent installation. So, you know, for those of you familiar with it, we didn't use our our pro wiring as we all know it and love it with the big giant Harding connectors. We had we had tails that went off and got wired into. Uh, junction boxes that were permanently installed. And then we pulled the EC um, had pulled power and data for us as we expect from the IT closet out to the position of the to the hoist out in the um, in the chapel. 
Um, and so we had, um, we had, you know, we had all of those field terminations to do, which isn't very many. What? <laughs> <laughs> in, right. a, in a bucket on the other I side mean, of the wall. Yeah. Through an access I mean, hatch. Yeah. I think, Cause it's I think, 20 I think locked out the total number. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. I can bring it up. The, uh, so each, yeah. Cause each motor cable has, uh, four number 10 wire connections and then eight, number 14 wire connections and then each signal cable has 24 20 24 connections that are all 22 gauge or 24 gauge um but anyway, it's a it's a fair amount and then you had two of them because there were two chain motors so <laughs> double all of that um and you had you know the male end and the female end so it's a lot of connections to make and a lot of connections uh, yeah and and you know as you just mentioned 48 or uh uh, 60 of them or something like that were you know 25 feet above the floor right um through an access path <laughs> through an access hatch. hatch yeah exactly and like they... bending around the corner right i mean yeah. yeah uh yes so it was uh it was definitely a big it was definitely a big project to get done um and again the the crew uh the crew at the the church actually ended up picking up and and hopping in and helping by making a pile of terminations down on the floor in the IT closet so that we could get um right. so that, so that we could at least get this finished right which was huge and they did it from, <laughs> oh, yeah. from everything you said and obviously from the time that it took it they were a huge part of getting this done it was really great yeah. that they uh could you know pitch in and get all the closet terminations done yeah, that was super helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, it definitely kept me from having to change my flight. <laughs> right. Yeah, I got you home on time. Yep. Yeah. Delta took care of that for me, though. They changed <laughs> it for me. But uh, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but it was a lot of terminations. And so, you know, as we were starting there, I mean, it was right as I had started. Uh, maybe I hadn't even really started. I think you were still, really. yeah, like on your part time, <laughs> quote unquote, part time. Yeah time in ohio yeah <laughs> um <laughs> the uh so you know it, it sort of came up that maybe what we maybe what we actually need to do is try and come up with a design for a uh you know a panel mount connector right that terminates in a j box into a terminal block right um so that you know our so our field connections aren't wire nuts and uh, lever nuts, which the lever nuts, for anybody who doesn't know them, are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and instead of a twist on wire nut, it's got two little levers in there, and you can you can put in from like what from like twenty four gauge down to fourteen or something. Yeah, it might even be as low as twelve, but it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it's a wide range of conductors that you can yeah. stuff into the same terminal. Yeah, it's um, nice. I mean, it was significantly better than trying to wire nut all of those connections. Yes, for sure. But yeah, and I mean, you know, it, I think that we do, you know, like we make those junction boxes, for instance, on our machines already. And what we need to yeah. do, like you're suggesting, is just come up with a stock J box like that for um, for permanent installations, so that we have a we have a solution at the ready that isn't going to drive people insane. Uh, when they go to field terminate this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it sort of came around if any, you know, for, for any of you out there who've got a, 
a system from ETC recently. It's uh, if you haven't popped open one of your one of your uh, one of your distro boxes out in the space, it's with the with your Socapex connections and all the other stuff. It's well worth pulling the face panel off and taking a look at how those terminations are made because that's uh, that is that is a pretty fantastic uh, a pretty fantastic field termination example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, the next time, and then, and then I came back and I took, there's somebody here in New York city, uh, Tom Carroll scenery is installing some, has installed some winches permanently at the new Irish rep space. Somebody else called us about a permanent install. Yeah. And then, and then when we were at USITT, I feel like every fourth person asked yeah. us about, what it would be to do permanent installations and what, what should we put in? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, no, it's true. And it, it's, it's neat to see that the, with the theater consultants getting more uh, interested in production automation infrastructure, you know, of like getting the theaters ready so that they can um, not, not just installing automated fly systems anymore, but just, you know, laying all the, the wiring in, so that you can do your turntables and your deck winches and your pit lifts and all that. Yeah. 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 So we should, uh, we should get on that. <laughs> yeah. We'll put that on the list. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on the list. Although, and I think we're kind of wrapping up, but it'd be, it'd be fun to just give a, a little glimpse into the shop life at the moment. Um, speaking of the, putting it on the list, the lists are actually, are actually starting to go the right direction these days after a, kind of a crazy year of playing catch up with uh, the increased demand and, and uh, trying to staff up. Um, we've finally, <laughs> finally achieved some of that. We have, um, I think, I think we're now up to 11 people on staff. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's a, from, uh, from what one, well certainly from the beginning in one but i mean even just as recently as the summer you know we'd had uh kind of an ups and downs uh year the the year prior and uh we were down to three staffers um in the shop so um being up at 11 has uh is certainly i mean there's a little bit of learning curve of getting everybody up to speed but people are you know we've got some pretty sharp shooters on the team these days and uh people are getting getting up to speed quickly and it's uh it's nice to see some of these backlogged items coming off the backlog and getting fixed and it's going to open up some opportunities to get these things done things like uh you know designing uh uh architectural boxes and things like that <laughs> right <laughs> yeah well it's great it's great that we've got you know we've we're we're getting staffed up in the right direction so yeah that's uh, good it's good because it looks like it's going to be a busy summer, which will be, which is also good. It's good to be busy, but uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't come at a better time to, to have <laughs> to have some new people on board. <laughs> so sweet. Well, I think that we're almost uh, an hour in, Mike. So we should probably call that a night and uh, and you know uh, wrap it up, man. Unless you had something else. I got nothing else. I think uh, nothing I think else. We're good. Sweet. <laughs> Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes and tell your friends. It's the best way for people to find the show. Uh, if you have things you'd like us to talk about, send an email to podcast at creativeconners.com and we'll see you next time.